0: Welcome, everyone. Uh, Thank you for joining us today uh, in this uh, session of the Oxford Virginia Legal Dialogues. I'm Tilly Lagan. I'm a professor of taxation law at Oxford University and one of the directors of the MSc in taxation at the Faculty of Law. And my co-convener for this workshop series is Ruth Mason, uh, the Erwin S. Cohen uh, Distinguished Professor of Law and Taxation at the University of Virginia and the uh, newly appointed uh, director of the Virginia Center of uh, Tax Law. Congratulations, Ruth. Um, The the purpose of this uh, workshop, those of you who um, who have been with us before uh, would know, uh, is to foster communication between tax scholars and non-tax scholars. Uh, I think by now you may be familiar with the format. Ruth and I invite a tax academic that we admire uh, to choose a work for discussion written, written by a, a non text, I'm sorry, academic that they uh, uh, admire. Uh, then we invite the author of the work to discuss it with us uh, here online. And all of our sessions are open to the public and available on YouTube. And uh, to find out about upcoming sessions, you can join our mailing list uh, or watch the social media announcement uh, to get updated. Um, so, it's a really special treat for us to have here today um, Judith Friedman and Timothy Endicott to discuss uh, Timothy's work on the value of vagueness. Uh, first, I would like to, to introduce our commentator, uh, Professor Judith Friedman. Uh, Ruth and I are excited to have with us uh, uh, today, to have Judith with us today. Um, And we're very pleased to welcome you Judith to the workshop, Uh, it seems like Judith needs no introduction to this uh, audience and yet, uh, let me say a couple of words Uh, so uh, Judith Friedman is an emeritus uh, professor of taxation law and policy. Um, At Oxford, um, having been the the inaugural professor of taxation law in the university uh, between 2001 and uh, 2019, an admired teacher and and scholar, uh, she still is very much a part of our uh, tax research community. Uh, And uh, Judith's important work focused uh, particularly on corporate and business taxation, with a special interest in, in tax policy and design. Uh, She has written uh, numerous uh, uh, pieces uh, about small businesses, about the interaction between law and accounting, tax avoidance, tax and corporate social responsibility, and the use of uh, discretion in the administration of taxation. Uh, Judith was uh, one of the founders of the Oxford University Center for Business Taxation and uh, uh, its director of legal research. She also was the leading force uh, in the setting up of the MSC in taxation in Oxford. And I can see many of our alumni uh, with, her, uh, with us here today. Um, and uh, Judith was also one of the first directors of the program. She has served on numerous committees and advisory uh, boards um, and is still the, the uh, general editor of the British Text Review. Um, and to, finally, to add to the many prizes and awards she has won, she was uh, elected in 2016 as a Fellow of the British Academy. Um, so welcome Judith, it's a real privilege to have you uh, with us today. Um, and, and Ruth and I were especially delighted uh, that Judith wanted to discuss with us today the work of Professor Timothy Endicott, who, who is joining us today, hi Timothy, welcome uh and again another figure that needs no introduction and yet uh just a couple of words um so uh uh, uh timothy is the Vinerian professor of english law at oxford uh and the university <laughs> academic uh, fellow at all souls college uh he is the former dean of the law faculty for two terms Uh, and also uh, served as the general editor of uh, the Oxford Journal of Legal Studies for six years. Uh, Timothy is one of the most prominent voices uh, in constitutional law and administrative law and in jurisprudence and has a special interest in in law and language and legal interpretation. He is the author of numerous articles and uh, two books, uh, one on administrative law, and the other, the topic of our conversation today, uh, vagueness in law. Uh, so it's a great honor to have you here with us, uh, Timothy, and uh, it's a great delight to welcome you, you two, here today. So without further ado, I'm going to uh, hand the floor over to uh, Judith uh, to introduce us with uh, the discussion of the day. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Silly um, and Ruth, for this wonderful series, um, which I have really enjoyed. I've watched a lot of them online. I've not always been able to join. Um, And uh, you're building up a great body of um, discussions and videos for people to watch. Um, I think this uh, is, uh, is a really wonderful idea and shows how multifaceted the study of law and tax law can be. And I really want to thank Timothy for agreeing to join this group of tax people, um, which is very brave of him, but I'm sure he's gonna do um, a fantastic job in uh, guiding us through some pretty complicated ideas. Um, he was It was his wise and calm writing which guided me when I was having difficulties responding to a particular line of comment that I was getting to work I was doing on tax, as I'll explain. And um, he has continued to be a great voice of reason as Dean of the Law Faculty, as well as um, in his writing. I'm really pleased that um, I've been able to choose his work um, to discuss, and I hope that um, many of you will of course already know about it, but it will also introduce his work to a wider audience amongst the tax community. Initially, I was going to talk about Timothy's um, book "Vagueness in Tax Law," which uh, sorry, "Vagueness in Law," which is an OUP book, um, which was produced around two thousand. Um, but he suggested, and I was very happy to concur, that we used an, a chapter that he had um, later written, which um, synthesizes a lot of that work um, and results in a very, very rich. Um, short but very rich article, which I hope people have had a chance to look at, and if you haven't, um, I really recommend it. Um, It's based on his earlier book, but has developed some of the ideas, and in particular makes some more references to taxation, so um, that's very useful for us. Although that wasn't the work I was initially using when I first used his work. Um, So I will sometimes uh, be referring to his 2000 book as well. Now, being an Oxford story, this connection between Timothy and me wasn't a straightforward one, me going along to the faculty and meeting him. I was having lunch in my college with someone in the philosophy department and he said, oh, didn't you know, don't you know that Timothy Endicott is working on exactly this problem that I was just trying to describe to him? And he's in your faculty. And of course, I didn't know. Um, Timothy, and I didn't know he was in the faculty because that's the way Oxford works, but we get there eventually through the college system. Um, and I started to look at Timothy's work um, because I was writing about the need for a statutory general anti-avoidance principle in UK tax law. Um, but his ideas go far wider than avoidance and I think one of the problems with um, this discussion in tax law is that we sometimes see it as only being about avoidance, but it's actually much wider than that in terms of how we should be drafting and whether we should be using principles um, on whether we should be aiming for precision. This is not something we should start with um, avoidance at. We should start with the basic drafting of our tax law. Um, When we think about how we design and draft tax law. But it is the preoccupation of most tax lawyers around this issue, um, anti-abuse. Now, this is quite strange because we have a lot of indeterminate concepts in tax law. For example, profit, the whole idea of profit. Um, Outsiders might think that that's a very precise um, term, profit, and that it can be defined with one figure. But there is nothing more indeterminate than profit as a concept. Um, Very few of us really understand what profit is, and definitely there's no such thing as true profit, and I think we're finding that with the recent discussions at international level. We can't agree what profit is. So that is a very indeterminate concept, and it's fundamental to tax. But initially, I was looking at uh, anti-avoidance, and I was looking at the relationship between rules and principles, or what in the U.S., um, those of you from the U.S. will think of as rules and standards. Um, now, Stanley Surrey had argued in 1969 that standards could reduce complexity in law, in tax law in particular. And David Weisbach at Chicago had argued in 1999 that this was the case um, in the context of anti-abuse. And later in around the um, late 1990s, um, John Braithwaite, who is a regulation specialist um, from Australia, had begun to take an interest in in tax, but also in how we write rules. Um, And I was also influenced by Rob Baldwin and Julia Black at the LSE. So a lot of different influences and a lot of different people were thinking at that time about that relationship between rules and principles and whether we could be drafting our um, legislation on a more principles-based way. Um, and we ended up with Braithwaite, and, and I was very um, influenced by Braithwaite, who was arguing that rules alone could not give the necessary guidance because they needed context, and therefore we needed obligatory principles, non-binding rules, which is the other way around from the way Um, Theorists really often think about these things. They usually think of rules being binding and principles being um, overarching, but Braithwaite was saying that we would have a structure of obligatory principles with non-binding background rules and um, a regulatory conversation, and that was really Julia Black's contribution, um, a forum, um, a context so that people understood what those non-binding rules were all about. Um, now, UK tax law has detailed binding rules and detailed non-binding rules and pages and pages of all of them. Um, on the surface, therefore, we have plenty of precision. And actually, we I was realising that we had a situation where we had so much precision, but no certainty, very little certainty, just a cat and mouse game, which you'll all be familiar with. Um, of finding the loopholes, stopping up the loopholes, using legislation to create some more loopholes. In fact, um, the more complex and precise the legislation was, the easier it was for clever advisors to find loopholes. And this is what um, Doreen McBarnett called creative compliance in her writing. So tax law seemed very much a candidate for reviewing the extent to which we wanted precise rules and the extent to which we wanted um, wider, vaguer rules. Now, the judiciary were busy developing their own vaguer approach um, in the so-called Ramsey principle, which it turns out um, we now know was always simply an approach to statutory interpretation um, and never a principle at all. But the limits and legitimacy of that were uncertain and remain uncertain. So I began to think about principles-based drafting and in particular, whether we could have a principles-based statutory general anti-abuse rule that would reduce complexity, but uh, not increase uncertainty. Um, and the objection all the time was and um, that I was getting from anyone I discussed this with was that such a principle would increase uncertainty and was a challenge to the rule of law and Timothy's work provides. Um, a way of answering that problem, um, I was looking for some help with that problem, so the criticism was and still is that principles in general and a gar in particular lack certainty, and that it follows from this that um it fails to satisfy the rule of law. So I'm going to speak about my understanding of how Timothy's ideas um, Helped me, and I may have completely misunderstood what he was trying to say. And in that case, it will be a very useful opportunity for him to put me right. But this is how I've used his work. And I want to uh, issue a disclaimer that his work is rooted in an enormous literature um, in vagueness, um, linguistics, um, philosophy. I know I've no more than scratched the surface, um, I've not read all the other philosophers. Um, but at this point, I think I want to make a point more generally about um, uh, interdisciplinary, or rather, multi, I should say, multidisciplinary work um, that is encouraged by this series of seminars. It is inevitable that we will stray into areas which we are not on which we are not experts. And I have strayed into economics in my time. I have strayed into accounting and I am now straying into philosophy, which seems very foolhardy, but we cannot do multidisciplinary work if we're not prepared to um, sometimes be looking a little foolish. And um, we have to hope that our colleagues um, will help us with lucid explanations like timothy's and putting us right if we've got it wrong so i feel i'm sticking my neck out a bit talking about philosophy but and i i think that's something we have to be prepared to do and i'm now old enough to um cope with that (laughs) um so um for those of you who are younger well just be brave um And I see Timothy's work as a very well-constructed bridge into the philosophy of vagueness, uh, which makes it perfect for this seminar series. So, Timothy's main arguments um, in his article, and, and in his book, I think, are, first of all, that vagueness can be valuable to lawmakers. It can be a deliberate technique. We're not talking about accidental vagueness we're talking about vagueness as a deliberate technique and vagueness may well bring some level of indeterminacy um, about the law that is the law will not give one correct answer in every case but it can also avert some of the forms of arbitrariness that come with precision so precision can also Uh, result in in indeterminacy or arbitrariness precision will be arbitrary if it prevents the legislation from achieving its objectives so timothy gives the example of defining an age below which a child may must be supervised Um, if you leave a child at home at what age um, do they have to be Um, and he says giving a precise age would not really give you um, a lack of arbitrariness because there are so many variable factors as to what you should be taking into account. So that's an example of precision which could lead to arbitrariness and I'll I'll give some tax examples later. Then his third point is, um, so that's the second point, vagueness may bring indeterminacy but it may be no worse than the indeterminacy you might get from precision. And it it may not give rise to any more arbitrariness than you would get from precision. And then vagueness is not necessarily a deficit in the rule of law. It might be, but it's not necessarily a deficit in the rule of law. Um, There's a balancing act to be performed in deciding whether the arbitrariness resulting from precision is worse than the arbitrariness resulting from applying a vague standard it's simply a balancing act um, as i see it but it is not necessarily always the case that you will result you will have more arbitrary results um, if you go for the standard or the principle rather than the detailed rule and when we then look at the rule of law issue And try to decide whether there is a deficit in the rule of law what we need to look at is whether there is um, a sufficient guide for people as to how to act Um, we can't expect the law to dictate an outcome in every case but we can expect it to provide a guide and it has to be possible to distinguish the reason of the law from the will of officials so we cannot leave it simply to the will of officials to decide um, what is the law. But if there is some structure around um, the officials decision-making process that may help to uh, deal with any deficit in the rule of law. So just to elaborate um, a little more on those points and bring in some tax examples, Um, as I've said, we're not talking here when we're talking about vagueness, about um, the kind of lack of certainty that results from an error, um, uh, because the draftsman is sloppy, that's not what we're talking about. We are not all, I think Timothy does discuss um, in his book, Linguistic Indeterminacy, but that's not really the focus of what I want to say today. So yes, it may be difficult to find words um, to say what it is you want to say, um, but We're here, that's linguistic indeterminacy, but what we're talking about here today is legal indeterminacy, um, really deliberate um, use of concepts that may not be considered um, completely precise. So a precise rule, and this is Timothy's example, is one which sets a speed limit or a voting age. And he also gives us an example, a tax rate. And I'll come back to that. Um, That would be a precise figure. They would often be quantitative rules. Um, You can't vote if you are not 18. Um, You must drive at 30 miles an hour or less. A vague rule might be one that refers to a broad descriptive term, And Timothy, in his chapter, actually gives a tax example. He gives the example of trade in tax law, um, a concept we're all familiar with that's very important to us. Um, And we could also refer to profit, as I've already done, and to employee, which I'm very preoccupied with at the moment. Um, These are terms which are not defined with precision, but we use them quite deliberately. Um, And then Timothy refers to the really extravagant and very common instances of vagueness in law. And he, uh, we could use the term reasonable, for example. We find all of these in areas of tax law. Now, one question is, is there any reason why we should not use these as techniques in tax law just as much as they are used in every other area of law, tort contract and even in criminal law? Um, If we think there is some special rule for tax, why do we think that tax shouldn't use these phrases um, just as much as any other area of law? And it would, I think, Timothy makes a a strong case in his chapter for saying that these are absolutely essential features of law, you could not draft law without some vagueness. So why is it considered to be such a problem in tax law? And that's just the question for the Q&A and for discussion. So going on to the problem of precision, um, just to give you an example, um, let's take a residence rule, a tax residence rule that simply used um, 183 days in a country as the rule. That looks very precise. It looks as if it's not open to arbitrariness. Except that it obviously is because we have to decide what amounts to presence in the jurisdiction, what happens if someone gets delayed or stuck, or there's a pandemic. Um, But more importantly, it won't achieve our objectives very well if we only use 183 days if we don't look at other factors such as whether the person has a home or family in the jurisdiction, whether they have other connecting factors. And if we only use 183 days, then someone who stays for 182 days precisely uh, escapes residence. And in that way, we are coming up with a rule that may appear precise and not arbitrary, but which actually will be very arbitrary indeed, Um, and will give quite a lot of scope to um, officials to argue, well, you weren't really here or you were really here. So I'm not convinced that that simple quantitative test would give us a a lack of arbitrariness or certainty. And if we move on to a concept like a trade or employee, um, would that make the application, uh, would that be um, less arbitrary if we tried to define employee and I've just been arguing with someone on Twitter this morning about how the definition of employee should simply be how long someone has um, had an engagement. And that clearly would not achieve the objectives of our legislation. Um, We have to, and I think the, the big thing about all these areas is that they are very fact dependent. And in any area which is very fact dependent, any attempt at precision is going to lead to arbitrariness. And you could, for example, take transfer pricing rules as another example. Could we make them more precise? Yes, but would that make them better? I would suggest no. So the fact is that these are all dependent on all the facts and um, in relation to tax avoidance, very detailed legislation will not give us more clarity We will simply end up arguing about what particular words mean and may even lose sight of the objectives of the underlying legislation. So that brings us to the rule of law issue. How can we deal with the defects in the rule of law if we do have these indeterminate phrases or vague phrases? And applying the Endicott analysis, um, no one watching tax law could imagine that precision has resulted in certainty in our system. Uh, We spent last week hearing about our VAT regulations and how um, there was an argument about whether the size of marshmallows uh, determined what the rate of tax would be, despite the fact that our VAT regulations are incredibly detailed. So what do we do um, about this? Um, And how do we give certainty? And my argument around the general anti-avoidance rule, for example, um, is that although we use extravagantly vague phrases in the UK anti-avoidance rule, we use a double reasonableness test. We have two references to reasonableness, uh, which might be considered to be very indeterminate indeed. Um, What we achieve. Um, actually is greater certainty um, and less arbitrariness than just by leaving this um, whole area to the courts, because the courts, if we don't have a rule, will attempt to stretch the law, will attempt to catch what seems to them evidently wrong. And we will have great uncertainty around what those particular words mean, whereas if we have a general anti avoidance rule which deliberately refers to reasonableness as a technique and uses vagueness, we can build around that a way of constraining the discretion of officials. Um, And that is what we need to do to cure the defect, that, that, that might otherwise result in the rule of law. And that is exactly what we have done. Whether we've done it successfully or not is a question for another day, but we have attempted to do um, is build a system around the general anti-avoidance rule with safeguards for taxpayers, with a panel which creates a regulatory uh, forum, a a discussion forum, um, and with administrative rules that prevent officials from using the GAR simply at will. And that takes us back to Braithwaite, my starting point with Braithwaite, that we have regulatory conversations with obligatory principles, non-binding background rules, and that gives us the best shot we have at legal certainty in complex situations. So that is how I have found the Endicott analysis so helpful um, in thinking about um, how we should draft our tax rules. Now, Timothy can tell me that I completely misunderstood it, but I will still think those things. Um, And he still helped me to think those things. Um, So I'm going to hand over now to Timothy. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much, uh, Judith.
0: And and Timothy, the floor is yours. Uh, After Timothy uh, will complete his uh, remarks, uh, we'll open the floor to, to comments, not uh, not before we'd let uh, Judith reply briefly if she would like to. Timothy, please.
2: Thank you, Silly, and thank you so much, Judith. And and I'm very glad to see you all. Um, th- th- I, I find this very encouraging actually. And do you know, I, I don't think, um, it, maybe if I were a tax lawyer, there would be something in what Judith said that I disagree with. I didn't spot anything that I disagree with. Um, and some of it I think is obviously really important, but I'm gonna have some questions about it for her. Um, they, when, you do, when you do legal philosophy, I mean, I, I don't think it's just about the problems of vagueness, but perhaps philosophy in general, that you, you spend, uh, you, you work, it's really hard and you work, you work hard and, and then you find yourself thinking that it's all um, just trivial playing with words. And then at other points you think it's so foundational that it's all that matters and 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 you you have to deal with that and but there's a risk that you'll be thinking so deeply about the abstract foundations that you'll lose sight of what they are foundations of Um, so I think that legal philosophy has to be multidisciplinary in the sense that Judith um, uh, explained and I that's why I just find it really encouraging I I found it um, encouraging when Judith gave her inaugural lecture um, in Oxford, as the uh, as as the professor of tax law, um, that she was thinking about these problems and And I didn't realize when I wrote the article that that Judith's been talking about. Um, I, I I hadn't thought through. Um, I didn't have the wherewithal to think through the importance and the complexity of the problems. and Um, And I seized on tax in that article, um, because all of us know some tax law, I'd heard about income tax, um, as as an example of the value of precision. Um, And what I'd like to do in these brief remarks, having gone back to that article and read it, and and the past is another country, so it's like reading something by somebody else who comes from another country, and uh, rereading it that way, I'm I'm kind of glad to see that I agree with some of what that that guy wrote. but but there there's one sort of important point that i that i thought i I might have um, articulated better and that's quite important and i wanted to comment on that about the arbitrariness that comes with precision because that's very important for what judith's talking about and then i would like to say a little bit about tax and revisit what i said there and, and and ask whether it was rash um, now that I, I've got a better picture of the complexity, and then I'm, I'll come finally to some brief questions about what Judith Judith has just said. Um, the 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 good thing about the article, I think, is that um, is that that, that I, I focused on um, the 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 arbitrariness that that comes from precision, because and and that I I wanted to do that to to try to shake up the idea that. That a, a vague rule uh, leads to arbitrariness, and a precise rule removes the arbitrariness. Um, and of course, you can you can see the attraction um, in in the idea that vagueness leads to arbitrariness. I think of uh, just looking at the examples that Judith has mentioned. I mentioned the minimum voting age in the in the article. Um, imagine we had a rule of maturity that that you're entitled to vote if you've reached an appropriate level of maturity, or, or just if you're mature. Um, and then, gosh, when you uh, register for the right to vote, you're gonna to have to, what some state official is gonna to have to pass judgment on your maturity. And, uh, and, and there are a couple of problems with this. One is the allocation of power to the official. And that's why we think of it as, as arbitrary, because the mere will, the mere say so of some official is deciding whether I'm mature um, is going to determine my right to vote, um, and that and that allocation of power is is a problem, and um, and then we can remove that if they. It, it, uh, I mean, we could remove it by just abolishing ages, but but there are so many problems with votes for children uh, in the way of potential for abuse and so on and. And uh, I, I don't know, I, I know some eight year olds and I wouldn't want to be governed by the, the people they elect as representatives. So um, we want some sort of way as a community of, of bringing maturity to political deliberation. But, oh, speaking of, speaking of children, uh, um, the, 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 it's so important, the role of children in the political community, that, um, I, that I think we need a voting age to protect them. Um, and uh, and then uh, we get away from the arbitrariness of the of the decision by some agency as to whether somebody's mature. That's and that prevents a form of power that's just liable to abuse and not not just not even just abuse, but just um the the, the risk is that the official won't be a, a good way on behalf of the community of deciding whether a particular person can vote. And finally, of course, when it comes to voting rights, it's actually specifically important that the, that the community communicate to all its members that, uh, that they're, they're in um, to vote without the, um, the state passing judgment on them, except in respect, to, of course, of passing judgment on how old they are. Uh, so there there, there's there is an attraction to the idea that that a precise rule can can avoid um the uh, an arbitrariness that comes with it with what with a vague rule that's more that allows a a application in a way that's more attuned to the underlying considerations the underlying considerations are maturity and political deliberation and if we simply had a rule that you have to be mature that would allow the official to um to do just the right thing, sending away this twenty five year old allowing this twelve year old to vote um, when when they can do a good job. Uh, well, there's so you see what I'm talking about. there's really good reason not to have um, a, 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 a rule that that imports into the community's decision the underlying considerations um, but 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 then, so. I wanted to shake up the idea that vagueness is arbitrary, leads to arbitrary decision making, and precision replaces it with with uh, the rationality of rule governed decision making by pointing out the arbitrariness that comes with with precision. Um, and and but looking back on it, I think that there are two different sources of the arbitrariness of precision that that are both sort of at play in in. In the article, but I I think it's worth distinguishing them and I think they're both important in taxation from what I've learned from 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 Judith and and there are actually two aspects of of arbitrariness that comes with precision and and the first one is generality. And if you have a precise tax law that that imposes a, a tax on income. Well, it, the beauty of it is that it applies generally. And in, in order to secure the benefits of precision for rule-governed rationality and decision-making, it's got to apply generally. There, there's a requirement of the rule of law for you. And, and then if it applies generally, it's going to apply um, in cases in, where, where the taxpayer is doing just fine and in cases where the taxpayer is struggling. And 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 they might be the taxpayer might be struggling, in ways that are uh, highly relevant to the underlying considerations in revenue in in state revenue. Ability to pay the, and the needs of the community for for public revenue. Um, well, an income tax gives us a, a a technique for precision. And and any precise income tax imposes that revenue burden in, in ways that are disparate, different from one, in one taxpayer to another because of the taxpayer's circumstances, the, their family's needs, their own needs, their own tastes, um, their, other, their other non-income resources and so on. So there, there's, a, there's a thing about a precise rule. It cannot pay attention to relevant differences in different cases. And that's, that's in, in the article. But there's another thing that strikes me reading the article, which is, regardless of, of, regardless of generality, even if, even if you have an entirely particular norm, you tell your 16-year-old she has to be home by 11 PM, there's a precise norm. Um, well, and, and there's no generality to it. It's just this evening, this person uh, has to come home at 11 p.m. It's not a general norm, and you'd be prepared to make it a, a different norm in different particular cases. But you see what you've done by giving a precise time. Uh, there, there's a, there's a, a, ideally some correspondence between the time you've picked and the underlying considerations. But the underlying considerations are themselves vague. And, and you can imagine what they might be together with, to, you know, to do with, with danger, with need for sleep, for, to be ready for whatever's happening tomorrow. All, all the other considerations that those material considerations that determine when it's okay for the, for, the, for the 16-year-old to come home and when it's appropriate for you to say now and not then all those underlying considerations, general moral reasons and general prudential reasons for action are vague. This is something I have found some lo- f- fellow lawyers are shocked by this idea. Justice is vague a- as a general requirement of, of legitimate action by the state, but, but, but by you and me. Justice is vague. Um, uh, justice might require compensation for tortious causation of a of a backache and there is no precise amount that counts as just compensation and if you start with one pound that's enough not enough if you get up to a billion pounds that'll be too much and there is no rational answer to the question what precise award of damages is just now here's I, i venture to say i don't know if judith will contradict me on this Here's one context in which precision really does have what you might call a general value, orders of a court. And an order of court that says the defendant must pay substantial damages to the plaintiff, that's a defective judicial order. We need need a a number that the law abiding defendant can, can tap into the online bank transfer in order to satisfy the award of damages, uh, so so there is an example of a of a of a requirement of precision. Now the underlying considerations, what does it take to to give fair compensation for causing this backache? They're vague. The underlying considerations are vague, but as a matter of legal order, we need we need a number. Now. Um, Suppose that's a so there's a virtue in in precision in in judicial orders. There's also some virtue in precision in tax uh, and and what I, I hope we might be able to get get at is um, what that value in precision is and and it, and I, I do still insist um, and as I suggested in the article that in order to understand the value of precision, you also need to understand the the the, the arbitrariness that arises from it. And let's let's understand that as both uh, the arbitrariness that arises from a general rule that cannot be sensitive to all the underlying considerations in different cases, but also the the inevitability in giving a precise answer to a question as to what is to be done of some Failure to precisely track the underlying considerations because the underlying considerations are not are not precise. Um, so so I just wanted to say those things about the the arbitrariness of uh, that comes with precision. and then I wanted to um, revisit what I said about tax in in that article um, and and here in our, in our discussions before this Judith Sort of suggested that um, that that I might have might have overplayed my cards when I said in the article that taxation gives the best possible example of the value of precision in constraining the officials. Let me read you what the article says about uh, about tax. Um, consider the difference. Now here this in my defense, I think this is important because I think there is a worthwhile difference to notice here. Consider the difference between the law of taxation and the law of spousal support after a breakdown in a relationship. I wasn't specific, but let's think of it as support for a spouse who's bringing up children, or perhaps support for the spouse's own needs. um, And and imagine a law that, that requires one spouse after a breakdown to support the other. Now, tax law generally uses precise rules, I naively said requiring, for example, the payment of a precise proportion of income. That regime brings with it an important form of arbitrariness because some people on a higher income are less easily able to carry the tax burden than some on a lower income. That's the, the arbitrariness of precision that, that reflects the generality of, of rules. Assuming that the purpose of the taxes share the burden of revenue in the community in, in a way that relates the burden to the ability to contribute, the arbitrariness of precision means that to some extent, the tax cannot achieve that purpose. Tax codes often try to cope with that form of arbitrariness by detailed rules allowing deductions for persons with dependent children, etc., cetera, etc, cetera. Um, those techniques are quite justifiable and can be quite sophisticated, But while complex rules on deductions can reduce the arbitrariness of precision, they cannot eliminate it. Moreover, their complexity itself runs contrary to what I call the normative principle which is simply that the point of making a rule is for it to be capable of guiding conduct. And the complexity of the standards of tax law can make it difficult to some extent to use the standards as guides and to apply them. Judith talked about, about the complexity and I didn't know enough about it to be more discriminating in the way I explained this problem. The, the arbitrariness that can come from complexity the complexity that emerges if we try to achieve a fit with the underlying considerations by a multiplicity, by multiplying precise standards in in the taxation scheme. So why not use a vague tax, I say. And here I offer one, the taxpayer must pay a proportion of income that is reasonable in the light of the revenue needs of the government and the taxpayer's circumstances. There's only one reasonableness test in there. Um, and I say that a law like that would have the fidelity value of vagueness, fidelity, the value of, of the, the standard, the, the norm, the rule, whatever you want to call it, tracking closely the underlying considerations. That, that vague tax rule would allow the officials applying the tax to act in a way that's faithful to the purpose of the law by relating the burden of taxation to the individual conditions of it of individual taxpayers. And then I proclaimed that such a law would, of course, be absurd and intolerable. Um, f- first, because of the implications for tax administration, <laughs> um, but, but also because what, however you, you run the administration of tax, it would leave taxpayers at the mercy of officials. And then I say taxation gives the best possible example of the value of precision in constraining the discretion of officials. Well, I think there's something to the to the contrast I draw with the law of spousal support. Um, and I I claim in the article that it wouldn't be wrong. If that would be wrong, that tax law would be all wrong. It it wouldn't be all wrong to have a law that determines an obligation of spells of support by reference to what's reasonable in light of the needs of the spouse seeking support and the ability to contribute of the spouse who's being asked for support. And and I, I, I still think that that's an important distinction, but I'm less confident about how, how I've explained it. and And in particular, in respect of a general anti-avoidance rule, um, I'm, I, I guess I'd like to ask Judith to explain a little bit more about why a double reasonableness test in, a, in, a, uh, in the regulation of measures taken to avoid tax um, does not lead to the sort of um, tyranny that I was suggesting in that article would arise from a, from a reasonableness test in, in tax. So I'd like to ask Judith, where is the value in precision? I find something attractive in the actual numbers in the UK income tax and and in the fact that you can type in what it says on your salary statement and on the website and it it actually tells you what the tax is. Uh, There's something attractive uh, in being able to do that. Attractive in in the sense of, well, in an emotional sense, actually, in the sense of my uh, feeling that that I'm not at sea, and my grasp of what's what what I'm up against. And of course, there's something valuable about it in rule of law terms, because it 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 gives me, and millions of taxpayers in this country, um, some. uh, it, It gives us a life that is governed in this pretty important respect um, uh, in a way that that's according to rules adopted by our parliament, um, clear open perspective general rules. So, so there seems to me a value in it. And I'd like to ask Judith if she can give any general description about the value of precision in tax law, given that I'm totally persuaded by what she says about how the arbitrariness of precision, the various forms of arbitrariness of precision, um, can actually create rule of law problems in a scheme that doesn't have a general anti-avoidance rule and tries to maintain a, a, a precision in all respects, multiplying complexity and, com- and complicating administration and, and making the tax more opaque to the taxpayer and. And creating the potential for creative compliance and so on so 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 i'm 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 persuaded um, and uh, that, that we we actually need vagueness in tax law. We need it in order to tax trades uh, or adventures in 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 the nature of trade as the as the uk tax law used to put it uh, and 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 then we need vague descriptions of of that. Of, of the tax base, that which is subject to tax, and that's because human affairs are so complex. We need vague tax law. And I, it's an important point in in Judith's inaugural lecture and, and in my discussions with her, that it's not just a general anti-avoidance rule. We need vagueness in the drafting of tax law. Okay, I'm one over, and then what is the value of precision? What, what when should the lawmakers, uh, Pursue precision in tax law. That's my my question for Judith.
1: Thank
0: you,
2: Judith.
1: You want me to try and answer that? Not hard you'd at all. would like to,
2: if you'd
0: well, like I'm going. To.
1: Yeah, but I will try to answer that. I think perhaps we are um, slightly across purposes because uh, in terms of which level we're looking at. Because I obviously agree, we have to have a rate of tax. We can't just say everybody should pay a fair tax. Um, and so if we have higher, we have wealthy people in the UK and we decide we want to tax them at 45%, not 40%, but 45%. Um, and I think it's um, it's obviously essential to have that rate of tax. The problem is that that then doesn't answer all the questions um, because we don't know what we're taxing as income and what we're taxing as capital. And those are very vague concepts. Um, so... If I have, I'm a private equity person and I have carried interest, um, I will argue that I should not pay 45%, I should be paying the capital gains tax rate, I should be paying 28% on that. Um, So we have given some level of certainty and satisfaction by saying it's 45% for the standard in the center of the spectrum but at the uh, edges of the spectrum we don't create certainty that way um and the other point that i would make about that is is your court order point um you and looking at your spousal support i agree that spousal support um can be based on an underlying notion of um doing what you can for the person, uh, for the family, giving a fair settlement, um, taking into account all the considerations. But at the point of the court order, as you yourself said earlier in your talk, you need a precise figure. The court will have to order a precise figure. And we have the same issue exactly in tax. Um, We have a situation where... There are many arguments about what is profit. There are many arguments about what the the correct transfer price should be. But once we've had those arguments, and when the court or the official or whoever is deciding the issue comes to a decision, we do need a precise figure. So we do both need a precise figure at the end, but we also need um, underlying... Sorry, that's my phone. I hope my husband's going to answer we also need ah, answer it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm gonna stop it. Um yes, yeah, so we have two levels. We do have the concept um, of how we're reaching that answer by taking into account a range of um, considerations. And we have exactly the same in tax. We're taking into account a range of considerations to decide what the answer is. But then when it comes to the final decision, which has to be made by the court or the official, we do need a precise answer. So we need both. We need that level of precision ultimately, but how we get to that level of precision um, and the rules getting us to that level of precision, in both cases, I think um, maybe better rules and less arbitrary if they are more fact-based and take into account a greater range of facts. Does that make sense?
2: Um, yes, yes, of course, of course it does. I mean, um, and 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 the point about the need for precision in court orders—that's um, true with spousal support as well, of course. Um, so the the, um, the there are there are many contexts in which we need a a, a, a decision um, a resolution of a dispute that brings resolution and, and resolution is only re- resolution involves precision in a sense and and general damages in tort is an example the the relevant considerations are vague. The Court has not done its job if it gives a vague order. it needs to give a precise order. Um, likewise, the spells of support it it's the 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 scheme is defective if if it yields a decision that uh, that one spouse has to give substantial support to the other. Um, and And that's because of of the need to rule the the need for the law to, to rule to actually. Have conclusive effect in action, in, in the payment of damages in the tort case, in payment of support, um, and and of course we, we could say we could say in tax law, well we need that, uh, but we could still uh, we could still have vague standards, and then you get your precision at the end when you're in a dispute with the with the tax um, department. Uh, then you get a court to to issue an order that tells you how much you have to pay and, and then that's where you get. Now, I agree that we need that precision at that point. Um, and then, but, but then at the earlier point, at, at the prospective point of legislating for tax liability, um, we also need forms of precision that we don't need in the spousal support uh, case, I think. Um, and now, and you've pointed out something about that, Judith, that, um, that we, we need precise tax on income if we have an income tax. We need a precise capital gains, gains tax if we have a capital gains tax. And then there will be a need for the system to give up a, a mad imaginary impulse to achieve complete precision because of the need to uh, secure revenue in a way that that involves both a capital gains tax and an income tax in a context in which the actual activities um, do not allow a useful, stable, precise distinction between capital gains and income. So, So then I guess my question is, why, why was it that we need a precise income tax? Um, I mean, it, 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 and, and you can tell we're doing philosophy because this is obvious. <laughs> it's just hard, hard to say why. Um, uh, why, do, why, do we, why is that 40%, uh, that number, whether it's 40% or whatever it is, why is it valuable to have that form of precision at the earlier stage that you've pointed out?
1: I think we need that precise number at the end of the process because we need to know what we're liable to pay but how we get to that precise number um, will rely on many um, imprecise discussions and in another area of work I've done looking at the relationship between tax law and accounting we have a very good example of where In accounting, you don't necessarily need a precise number at the end. You can have a discussion about what the profit is, and then you can have the profit presented uh, in one way for one purpose, for paying dividends or for um, reporting. But when you come to reporting to the public, you may offer a range of figures because uh, you can have notes explaining why you have a range of figures. But when it comes to paying tax on that amount, you have to have one figure because simply need one figure to pay tax on um it's just a practical consideration um so there has to be a difference um between the way we look at tax accounts and the way we look at um financial statements and um, financial reporting um, mm-hmm. so i think the there are it, both of them start with the same process but tax does need to end with a more precise process simply for practical reasons. But in the same way, I think your spousal support example needs to end with a practical, precise figure for practical reasons.
2: That's right, exactly, yeah, I
3: agree.
0: Um, So thank you both, Uh, this was a fascinating discussion. And uh, although I know you could go on uh, discussing with each other, I'd like to open up the floor uh, for others to participate. And uh, first, I'd like to, uh, to turn to Ruth uh, uh, for a comment and a question. And uh, while uh, Ruth is unmuting, uh, please uh, feel free to raise your hands if you would like to, uh, to make a comment or ask a question. And also, I'd like to encourage you to use the chat box to, uh, to present yourself, say who you are and where you're from, uh, Ruth, please.
3: Great. So thank you so much. This has been a really rich discussion, and I've followed it closely. And you know, I was thinking about well, what is what is the what is the tax the principle we're pursuing in tax? And I mean, maybe it's something like to support the revenue needs of the community, we should tax like community members alike. That's pretty vague, Um, you know. But at the end of the day, as as Timothy and and Judith have both been saying, you know. We tax a number. we We have to have a dollar amount that a person declares in their income that we attach a percentage to. And so that's you know that that that's a degree of, you know if we we were aiming at the principal, we would want to know all the things that Timothy was was talking about. We want to know the family situation. We want to know the earnings capability. We want to really know what um, investments, what capital the person has. But at the end of the day, we're measuring a dollar amount and then we measure because we need a precise dollar amount, we tend to look at what's convenient and easy to measure and that's you know, income from employment. And, and so we stray from our ideal, our principle, which is you know tax-alikes alike. Um, and, and that injects arbitrariness, right? The, the, the getting from the principle to the tax liability. What we're demanding out of our tax system is just an unreasonable, unattainable um, task, right? To 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 precisely measure this um, normative goal we're aiming at, and so maybe some of this arbitrariness is inevitable. But you can you can perhaps make it smaller, but you can't get away from the idea that we can't really measure what we're after precisely. Um, you know, and, and I think you, you see this not only with, I mean, I was thinking about that in terms of uh, individual income, but also as Judith said, in, in standards like transfer pricing, you know, we have a standard, the arm's length standard, where we have clear reflection of income or commensurate with income. We have these standards, right? Um, and then we have regulations that are trying to help the taxpayer get from the standard to a number. But we say that the standard represents a range, there's a range of acceptable. Um, uh, amounts that the taxpayer, to, uh, you know, could declare, but at the end of the day, there's one number that gets picked, and so that feels arbitrary. So I don't know if that means that arbitrariness is worse in tax than it is in other areas, but I think um, it's it, it may be impossible to avoid all of it. And um, you know what you see in the U.S. and elsewhere is that you have when you have a vague standard like commensurate with income or arm's length, then you have the the executive, the administrative agency come in and engraft a kind of precision on top of these rules. So you have a vague standard, but then you have the executive say, okay, but if you um do a, a cost sharing agreement in advance, we don't have to get into what that is, but just suffice it to say it behaves in a more rule-like, more precise standard to try to reduce the vagueness of the standard and give um taxpayers some ex anti certainty. And, and so you know what one question I have is, you know, you, you you might have thought that, and this can go in either direction, right? The, the administrative agency or the judicial interpretation that comes later can either add more vagueness or it can add more precision. It can go in either direction. You know, I, I I might have thought before this discussion that additional judicial interpretations or agency interpretations always add more precision because now we know more than we knew before, but the agency or the um, court could engraft a standard onto what otherwise looked like a precise rule. So, you know, for the U.S. people, think about the Dormant Commerce Clause, you have a rule, no no discrimination, and then the court engrafts eventually the undue burden standard onto this, right? And so it becomes a lot more vague. Um, and so, you know, if that's right, descriptively, like vagueness or precision can be added after the fact, after the is already done, how, how should we think about that? Um, do we have uh, a sense of how the three branches ought to be relating to each other on this? Do we have ideas about canons of statutory interpretation or concepts of deference um, to, you know, the legislature to accommodate right sizing of vagueness and precision? Well, should we be glad? Um, about changes in the degree of vagueness and pre- precision to laws over uh, the years? Um, or should we say, no, 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 we shouldn't have that kind of discretion. We should just go with what the legislature wanted. And if the legislature got it wrong, then it's up to that the legislature to fix to fix it. Um, and so, you know, I mean. In a sense, it seems like the law is kind of self-stabilizing with respect to vagueness or precision, right? That additional interpretations kind of help if the legislature got it wrong, But then I wasn't sure how I should think about that in terms of accountability. So that's like a new set of questions maybe to add to this
4: already very rich discussion.
0: Thank you, Ruth. Uh, uh, Judith or Timothy, would you like to, to reply? I don't feel like you have to, I mean, uh, but if you would like to reply, then please do.
2: Well, 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 just a brief brief comment on that, that last idea. Yeah, that's interesting, Ruth. We could think of it as certainty homeostasis. If if, <laughs> if we try to make the rules too certain, then uh, well, there'll be the creative compliance phenomenon, but there'll also be the judicial phenomenon where the judges will start to um, will start to find creative ways to avoid giving effect to to precise rules, and we'll end up with with with, um, with, with a more or less stable amount of uncertainty in the system, I don't know, it, w- it will of course depend on the, on the particular regulatory scheme or scheme of taxation. Um, they, and, and the other idea in, in what you've, and, and I think it was important in what Judith said earlier, but, and it's also in her inaugural lecture, that um, that precision, and I know this is true in other areas of the law, that, that precise rules can, can lead to, well, what we might call equity in, in general. I, I, I know, I, I, or I assume, I don't know, I assume that it, that I can't uh, go to a, an, a, a, an English court and ask them not to apply these rigid rules because they're inequitable and ask them to depart from the rules on grounds of equity. I don't think I can, I can do that. Uh, but um, think of equity in general as a court's jurisdiction to Depart from precise general rules and and there are areas of the law where where there's a well established jurisdiction for them to do so. Um, in tax law the, the their impulse to avoid the um, presumably to avoid inequitable implications of uh, applications of the of precise rules will also affect the the certainty that results from precision um, uh, you you asked early in what you said whether arbitrariness is inevitable and i thought it, it, uh, arbitrariness is such a um a, is such an important idea and and a rather delicate idea because it 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 sounds like it ought to be a pejorative but maybe one one result of what Judith and i have been saying is that and 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 perhaps you were suggesting this Ruth, is that arbitrariness in the sense of de- departure from reason, that sounds terrible, departure from reason, but it it may be necessary to depart from reason in one respect, in other words, not paying attention to um, to the, the way one tax, income taxpayer faces expenses that another doesn't. Um, it may be necessary not to attend to those reasons, and there may be good reason for doing so. And then, is it arbitrary? Well, in a sense, yes but not in the pejorative sense. If, if there's a, a reason of, of good ordering in the community and, 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 and avoiding making impossible distinctions and avoiding overcomplicating the tax code and the tax administration, if there are good reasons to impose a precise general rule, then the, it imports a form of arbitrariness, but it's not the pejorative kind of arbitrariness if, it's, if there's reason for it.
0: Thank you. Uh, Judith, would you like to,
1: to add to that? I definitely think the courts can increase um, vagueness by adding um, precedents which um, raise further questions. So uh, there is no doubt in my mind that um, you might have something that appears to be a precise rule, but then it will be argued by the lawyers in order to show that it is not as precise as we all thought it was, and that is in fact the, the lawyer's job. Um, the advocate's job um, to show that there are all sorts of other factors which should be being taken into account and we will then have the the judges commenting on that and I have to give an example quickly from yesterday when I was sitting um, in court and thinking about this because I was acting as a judge and um, looking at whether to give people disability benefits um, on the basis of whether they could walk 200 metres or not and um, that is a very, very precise test But of course, um, around that, we've had to bring in a regulation which says, can they walk um, uh, repeatedly, safely and um, uh, without... uh, uh, regularly and then the courts have looked at that and said well that means uh, should they be in pain or should they not be in pain when they're walking and so on and should they have a stick or uh, can they have a stick or not so something that started as very precise actually has then accrued um, regulatory um, complexity and then further than that um, judicial complexity as, as we see how many different factors can underlie that decision, and it becomes less and less precise by people adding. In a way, it's less and less precise. You might say it's becoming more precise because we have more information, as you said. But it gives mm-hmm. us more things we have to decide, and there is more discretion in the judges. Without any doubt, it gives us more discretion.
0: Thank
4: you, uh, Amanda Parsons, please. <clears throat> Hi, um, thank you so much. I'm really, I really have been, uh, enjoyed the conversation so far. Um. I have a question about sort of how the um, value of sort of vagueness versus precision um, is impacted by the sort of dynamics of the specific institutions that are applying on the laws. Um, And just to be a little bit more specific, so in the US, um, we do have some tax disputes that are happening in the courts, the courts matter, right? But a lot of the action is happening at the um, uh, agency uh, level, like as as Ruth was uh, uh, noting earlier, and, um, you know, with audit disputes, private letter rulings, um, and the IRS isn't actually bound by its earlier decisions, uh, while the courts are, but the IRS isn't bound by its earlier decisions, right? It could t- apply a vague, um, rule in one way to taxpayer X, and then the next day apply it in a different way to taxpayer Y. Um, and then that's totally fine. Um, and they actually often do that because of, the um, this you know, push and pull dynamic that happens between um, the IRS and taxpayers, as taxpayers are kind of like trying to uh, engage in creative tax planning, push the sort of limits of uh, tax law, um, and this can also lead to like this you know incoherent kind of scattered um, uh, regime, which is something um, that uh, you know Kristen Hickman and Claire Hill um, really like clearly laid out on an article a few years ago. Um, and so, I guess my question sort of boils down to: Does does um, the value of vagueness require decision makers to be, to at least some extent, bound by uh, their previous decisions? Or the previous decisions of their, like within other uh, institution.
0: Thank
2: you, um, Timothy. Judith, can okay. can you help us with that, Judith? Do,
0: do
1: that actually be more a rule of law point than a than a vagueness point. i mean, um to some extent uh, there has to be some way of arguing that these rules should be applied equally to different taxpayers. and if you found that they were being applied radically differently than in the u k, you would presumably be able to to, to um have some kind of judicial review remedy um but only if you had standing and only if it was applied um unreasonably in a in a non-legitimate way to you so um it would be difficult to find a remedy but um the aim must be to have some sufficient control of the discretion of the official um to ensure that that does not happen on a whim that there has to be a reason and that they're um working within some some regulation, regulatory regulatory um, boundaries, but I think that's actually more for Timothy than me because he's an administrative lawyer. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, uh, and and gosh, uh, as a matter of general administrative law, I think it's an extraordinarily difficult question to ask to 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 answer. And, and I wouldn't say that administrative agencies should generally be bound by their past decisions, but but I think it's a good general proposition of administrative law, including in respect of taxation, that, um, that a court should have jurisdiction to give a remedy against um, uh, failures of consistency in agency decision-making that are unfair. Um, or, uh, so, so, there's of course, there's something attractive to that idea, Amanda. Um, thanks. I, uh, so I'm impossible? Just... maybe maybe and 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 I think precision is complete precision is impossible, but that's not a bad thing. Complete consistency is impossible, but maybe that's that is a bad thing. <laughs> I don't know.
0: Yeah, thank you. So I'm conscious of of the time, and we have four questions, and i'm thinking I'm thinking maybe we should take them in pairs now uh, before we turn to the speakers. So David Duff, hi, David.
5: Uh, silly, uh, thank you to you and Ruth for putting this together and Judith, uh, Timothy, good to see you and thank you for the great discussion. Um, as I reflect on vagueness, I, I at times it seems as though uh, Timothy is suggesting that vagueness itself is a virtue in the law and I guess I wanted to probe that a little bit because I see vagueness as inevitable but whether it's a positive virtue, I, I I'm skeptical about that. I think it's associated with other virtues, in particular fairness. Uh, So we need sort of more open-ended rules, reasonableness, standards, uh, anti-avoidance rules in order to ensure fairness that results in some vagueness. But the vagueness is kind of this unfortunate side effect to get the, the true virtue, which is the fairness. And then that raises questions, at least in my mind, and then that raises questions about how you can try to constrain That vagueness, um, particularly when you're if I come back to anti avoidance rules, one of the huge challenges is when you've got very detailed statutory provisions, for course, to go behind them and assess what the purpose of those provisions is in order to apply anti avoidance rules. Uh, uh, And it seems to me as though we could do a better job in tax law on that. That's partly, I think, when Judas talks about principles-based drafting, although I'm less certain it needs to be in the legislation as opposed to extrinsic statements of purpose, more robust statements than one often gets in um, uh, 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 from legislatures when they enact new legislation. Our Department of Finance, for example, issues technical notes that are almost a paraphrase of the legislation and therefore useless, really, for uh, exploring the purpose. And- Providing more robust explanations of purpose behind detailed rules, I think, can constrain some of the vagueness around the application
6: of anti-avoidance rules.
0: Thank you, uh, Ted Seto.
6: Hi. Yeah. So there's a there's a, a factor that hasn't really been raised, at least in this session, that I wanted to put on the floor, and that is uh, the question of in what context are we giving the guidance and to whom. Uh, so uh, in U.S. private law, we have the concept of settlement in the shadow of the law, or, uh, or compliance in the shadow of the law. And the notion is that we will try to structure the rules so that people can resolve their differences um, without involving the courts, because involving the courts is very, very expensive. Uh, and, and as a result, we end up with a lot of general legal rules with some elaboration by the courts, and then very specific ways of Trying to resolve those things, for example, in California, coming back to Timothy's point about spousal support, we have very vague general rules, uh, and, and then we have software, and the software tells you exactly what you have to pay. Uh, the software is not the law, uh, but I would guess that well over 95 percent of all divorces use the software, and bingo, it's done, and, and that keeps the courts out of the uh, out of the um, out of the uh, uh, out of the issue. So in tax, we have uh, a couple of different contexts. We have the, the very sophisticated, let's say partnership or multinational context in which there are experts who can resolve issues in the, in the shadow of the law, taking into account all of the stuff that's out there. And then we have the average taxpayer who maybe has the guidance from TurboTax or H&R Block Software, but otherwise is just trying to, you know, make April as unpainful as possible. Um, and, and, and I think there, um, precision is really very important and not just precision but simple understandable uh, precision. So for example, uh, this is a problem I'm working on right now. Are you married for tax purposes? Um, uh, and uh, there are two ways of doing this. You say, well, do you have a marriage certificate And uh, in your state and is that marriage certificate valid under state law? Uh, really straightforward. Okay. And that's in fact what we use in the United States. Um, uh, but There are other ways of doing it. Uh, With apologies to Australians, uh, my understanding is that in Australia, the question is, are you in a marriage-like relationship? Uh, And you can just imagine uh, taxpayers trying to figure that out and figure out whether they're in this regime for single people or in that regime for people who are in a marriage-like relationship. Uh, Again, uh, it seems to me that in the context of filing initial return, there are very different considerations uh, to be uh, to be considered when we're uh, uh, in, in, in tax when we're talking about individuals um, without legal advice, uh, a, 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 as opposed to, for example, the the kinds of anti avoidance rules that I think Judith was referring to, uh, in in more sophisticated contexts.
0: Thank you, um, Timothy. Would you like to comment on these?
2: Thank you. Uh, briefly, in in response to what you said, David, um, I guess I wanted to um so I, first of all vagueness isn't in, in intrinsically valuable um i i i guess i wanted to say that it's not necessarily best understood as an unfortunate side effect um when when there's a good reason to adopt it as a technique mm. uh, and 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 then it can actually be valuable it's only valuable at, at, as as a feature of a technique for securing some value such as, such as fairness. Um, and and I, it can be inevitable and regrettable or it can be something that the, the lawmaker should uh, use and, and, then it, and then it's valuable in, in it as a technique. Um, and, uh, and, and of course, I do agree with what Ted Sato said that uh, the context of the guidance is, is is crucial and that and then my goodness uh it can th- there can be a very a, a great distance between the vagueness or precision of the of of the set of rules spousal support or whatever and what actually goes on and what what advice counts as good advice to the to the client um, that can depend on a lot of matters um, involving well well enforcement and costs of process and costs of advice and and so on as well so I, I do agree that that these rules um, can that 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 a lot of what goes on goes on in, in the shadow of them, as you say. And then but then it, I think it can make a difference whether the shadow is sort of fuzzy or very sharply delineated. Judith?
1: Okay, so I agree with what um Timothy has just said, and I won't repeat those points. Um, on david's um purpose external to the legislation the problem with that is then we get into hierarchies and um, which overrides what and that was that's what um, discussions in the uk on um purposes uh the uh, principles based legislation has run into um that's very brief it's a massive <laughs> it's a really interesting discussion i can't go into it um, and I agree with what uh, context is of course important, and we do need some areas where we have simple rules so that the whole thing is workable. And I'm a member; of, I'm on the board of the Office of Tax Simplification here in the UK, which has just been abolished in our mini budget. It's the only thing left from our mini budget, so it's pretty devastating. Um, uh, but um, I agree with that. But I do not agree, and I deeply disagree with you, Ted, that software can tell you answers, software will never tell you answers, it's what's been put into the software, and if what's gone into the software is rubbish, then what comes out of the software is going to be rubbish, and if you don't have simple rules to start with, your software is not going to solve the problem, and that's exactly what's happened in the UK with um, our UK rules on um, In how we define employees, we don't have a clear definition, and there. But the revenue does have a tool which is supposed to tell you whether you have an employee or not, and the tool is rubbish because we don't have a clear underlying set of rules. So rubbish in and rubbish out. Um, So that would be my answer on that. Thank you, Uh,
0: Stephen Daly. Hi, Steve.
7: Hi, thanks very much. This has been absolutely fantastic, a great way to spend a Friday afternoon. Really loved the paper, really loved the discussion as well afterwards. It seems to me a lot of the discussion so far has focused on uh, the substance of tax, and I think it's important to separate the substance from the procedure. I'd, I'd go all in and say, actually, all areas of tax in terms of the substance of tax rules are, are vague, except for, except for the rate, actually, except for the rate that Professor Endicott raised. If you look at the base, the rate, timing, unit, how you deal with intermediaries and the jurisdiction of tax all these elements are essential to the substance of tax rules i think there's vagueness inherent in all of those but it's on the procedure i would argue that you want to have precision so when is a tax return due when can a tax um, inquiry be opened what's the limits on how long a tax inquiry can go on for how, what are the precise rules around how you open an inquiry and so on but although we have precise rules on that in the uk with some precise rules other countries have more precise rules it seems to me like the courts adopt a kind of Janus-faced approach, sometimes being very strict in how they interpret those precise rules and sometimes quite loose on how they interpret those precise rules. So um, coming back to a recent case where they did, in fact, use equity. Professor Endicott, you you were joking about, you know, you could go to court and say this tax provision is unfair and I don't think it's equitable, but the tax authority does get away with doing that when it comes to administration. This administrative rule Is very strict and it's resulted in an unfair outcome for us therefore we shouldn't have to apply for and that worked in a recent case of Tinkler they were required to submit they were required to send the notice of assessment to the person's address they didn't do it supreme court said it didn't matter because they relied upon the equitable um estoppel by convention using equity so i think that um just the the broad point i'd like to say is i think there's a lot that could be written also in this area around tax procedure and not just the substance
0: thank you uh,
8: Louis, please. Hi, Yeah, um, thank you for this. Um, so I, I just trying to wrap my head around um, some of the points that have been made about uh, administrative implications and the legitimacy issues that might be arising in terms of where the vagueness or the precision comes from. Um, and it seems that actually until this just last question um, from Stephen Daly, most of the conversation has revolved around the guidance value of precision rather than what you call the process value, um, which, which I suppose in this context concerns how the precision of the rules or, or lack thereof affects the ability of the revenue authorities to administer the tax system. Um, but in the face of vagueness, it seems often the response of HMRC is maybe to try and wrench us back towards precision by publishing guidance as to the interpretation of the substantive rules. and this is something that I think we see across a lot of different um, administrative law contexts. Um, Immigration is probably a prominent example. Um, And I'm aware that you say that the power delegation function of vagueness is negative counterpart of that process value, but I suppose I'm just maybe prospecting um, for for more detail there. I I guess my question boils down to um, either in tax specifically or across administrative law as a whole, does a normative problem arise where a vague standard has been adopted to begin with and then the administrators attempt to superimpose precision back onto it?
0: Thank you. Um, So we're nearly out of time, but uh, uh, I would like to uh, let Timothy and and Judith uh, take the time to to respond to this. And if you'd like to say something uh, briefly in conclusion.
2: I, I, briefly briefly on, on that last point from Lewis Triggs, I, I, I think it's hard to generalize it because, and I do think that it's a, a very significant technique of delegation to administrative agencies, vague legislation that they're responsible for implementing and applying, and then the the issuance of policy guidelines can be their way of exercising the power that they've been has been allocated to them, and I just I don't think we can have any general answer to the question. Well, is that a good idea? It it may be terrifically useful, or it may be a tool tool of of bad policy making or abuse, and and um, and and it needs to be controlled uh, the the making of policy. And sure is in, in UK administrative law. My goodness, um, the, and and then um, what Stephen Daly said. I, um, there, I, I talked. To, I think I talked a bit about civil procedure, and there's an analogy. I, I kind of think that it, it's good to have precise um, deadlines for filing something in civil procedure, and also in tax in, in tax administration. I think um, that that let me know that I've satisfied the requirement. But then it might also be good to have an equitable approach to failures, deviations, delays, late 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 filings and so on. Um, and, and whether it's a good idea to have an equitable approach to the procedural requirements on the, on the agency, that's a different question and too complicated for me. Um, and maybe you're suggesting that they shouldn't get any equity. Um, I'm, I'm not certain about that. I can't, I can't decide. Judith?
1: Well, I'm yeah, Stephen, you've raised a, an area which is really big in the UK at the moment with some very strange decisions emerging, um, but we do also have equity in favour of taxpayer with all the reasonable excuse cases, so it's, um, it's a massive question but really interesting and to discuss it at some other time, I think, Um, but it's a very interesting one. And Louis, um, Triggs, uh, I think that, I mean, as we said, as Ruth suggested earlier, guidance may try to give you more specificity, um, a more a less vagueness, um, but in doing so, it may actually add to the vagueness by adding all sorts of strange uh, requirements. So, um, You know just back to the employee example the uk guidance for lecturers and whether they're employed or not says do you use your own powerpoint machine which is the most useless um piece of uh, information i would say but yes that's put into the mix and makes it all even less certain so can make it worse um and does need to be controlled as timothy suggests um Overall, thank you to everyone for all these great comments, and I'm going to go away and think about them all. Um, and also to Timothy's really, um, really good uh, presentation and comments. There's a lot to think about there, um, and i really enjoyed that uh, discussion. So thanks everybody for, for being here. Um, for can I say, can and I say
2: thank, thank you to Judith and 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 Silly and Ruth and and to all. I I was a bit scared, and and I but I've learned something. That's great. I, I, you know what I'd love it's it's technically possible a copy of the the comments in the chat I don't know if that's possible, thank you all.
0: It is possible and we will forward for them, Uh, so uh, thank you both so much, Uh, this was a fascinating uh, afternoon, Uh, please join me in thanking uh, Judith Friedman and Timothy Endicott. Thank you.